Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's and chapter 8. Song of Songs, chapter 8, the concluding chapter of this great love song. We've noted that although it features a cast of characters, there isn't really a plot here so much as a, a series of tableau in which that revolve around the woman, the Shulamite, and Solomon, the man whom she loves, with these other characters appearing to advance the songs, the poetry. And we have seen how it is a song that is about married love, but it is about that period between, it's very important in ancient Near Eastern culture, between the betrothal and the consummation of the marriage. And of course that is used as a picture by our Lord that the, the bridegroom coming is a picture of his second advent, his appearing for his people. And that period between his first advent and second advent is that period when the church is longing for deeper, richer fellowship with him. Just as this is a song about married love, it therefore is a picture of a love between Christ and the church. We've noted how the, the woman, the Shulamite, has the larger share of the, the songs, and therefore it is primarily a song from the perspective of the Lord's people longing for the deeper intimacy of him, with him rather, and longing for his second coming. So, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, which begins with the words of the Shulamite. Oh, that you were like my brother, who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to instruct me. I would cause you to drink of spiced wine, of the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Who is this coming from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy is cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. We have a little sister. She has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. And if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I am a wall, and my breasts like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He leased a vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit two hundred. You who dwell in the gardens, the companions, listen to your voice. Listen for your voice. Let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a, like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. 
the final chapter of the Song of Songs, as it were, ties up the whole thing in a great conclusion, a great summing up. You have noticed that at the end we have these last two verses. Verse 13 is spoken by the beloved, and verse 14 by the Shulamite. It sums up the whole thing, looking forward to that great wedding day. We see, first of all, here in this chapter, a great desire for intimacy. And it's particularly expressed by the Shulamite. She wants intimacy with her beloved. And so it opens with verses that that are something of a counterpoint to what we had back in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 9, she speak, or he speaks of her, and he says, You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. He speaks of her as his sister, again in verse 12. And now she says she longs to be, she longs that he were like her brother. Now, why is this? Well, in the ancient Near East... There was very much a a taboo about public displays of intimacy, except between relatives, and particularly brother and sister. The idea is that if this were my brother, then wherever I met him, I could kiss him, and nobody would mind. I could enjoy that relationship with him, even outside, not just on the inside. She's longing for this close relationship. But of course we find with our Lord Jesus Christ that he has taken our human nature. He has become literally the brother to his people. He who is God beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, became this man. He became man that he might enter into that deepest relationship with his people. That he is indeed, if she is the, the Shulamite, then he is the Solomon the names go with one another. She is his female counterpart. And she longs then to be with him, to enjoy this intimacy, to be able to express love. The church, and we are thinking here particularly of the church, the church desires in her best days to know more of the Lord Jesus to have a a closer relationship with him and of course this translates to the individual believer to to know him this is Paul's great desire to know him and be known of him that I might know him that I might have in other words the very closest relationship with him not as one who was far off from him but as one who is as close as close can be. As he says in Philippians chapter 2, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And of course, knowledge here is not not so much knowing about him. It does involve knowing about him. It is entering into this deep, relationship by faith in prayer with the Lord Jesus and we look forward to the fullness of that relationship when he comes again that there is this deep desire and she looks forward verse 3 
His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Love is to her it's a wonderful thing. She's looking forward to this embrace to be held and upheld by him. We find, for example, those famous words in Deuteronomy chapter 33. Deuteronomy 33 and verse 27. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. The arms of love that compass me. The arms of God who upholds his people. We are weak and he is mighty. We have that picture in verse 5. Who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? We lean upon him. And the wonder is that he lets us lean upon him. He lets us recline upon him as John at the Last Supper who reclined at that closest position reclining upon the bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ so that he could speak to him and the Lord could speak to John. Again, King David says in Psalm 63 Verse 8, he says, my soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. We we hold, but most of all we are upheld. He holds up his people whom he loves. And so the bride says in verse 4, again harking back to words she's spoken twice before, I charge your daughter Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until... It pleases that love is not something to be taken lightly. That it is indeed a sovereign love. God's love is not something that we can bring to ourselves, but rather he, his love is a love that is sovereignly sent to his people. And it's not to be taken lightly. That's the idea here, that she's speaking to these other women and saying, Don't be light about this matter of love. Take it seriously. And then we have a voice, somebody, an onlooker. The New King James guesses that the character here is some relative of hers. Who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? Who is this? What is her character? What is her identity? Well, first of all, her character is that she does lean upon the beloved. Christ's people, Christ's church, lean. We lean upon him. That he upholds his people. He is our strength. He is our support. He is our all. And we need him. The church, at her her best, in her best days, is most dependent. The church does not think in terms of independence, but thinks rather in terms of Christ is our Lord. He is not simply an example, he is not simply a teacher, he is the one upon whom the church leans personally. We recline upon him, we need him. And we have this language, the second part of verse 5 is somewhat obscure, but the idea here is that she is under the apple tree, dozing perhaps, dreaming about him, thinking about him. And she is 
awoken there. And then she speaks to her beloved, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Now the idea here is not the impression of the seal so much, but the idea of that seal cylinder. That cylinder that would be rolled upon the clay in this case, and it would leave a mark declaring whose it was. And she is saying, let me be as one who is wholly yours. A seal upon your heart. Now, how would you carry a seal? Well, very often it would be carried on a chain or a cord around the neck. So the idea here is that she is close to him as one who is identified as his. And one who identifies herself as his. And as a seal upon the arm, perhaps a seal would be worn as a bracelet as well. Again, the same idea that it's personal and the most personal thing. The seal is the most personal kind of jewellery because the seal declares this is the seal of King Solomon. If you go to the British Museum you can find cases and cases and cases full of these seals and they were individual things. There are still some countries in the world today where rather than doing what we tend to do in this country, you sign a signature, there are some countries where basically everybody has their own individual seal. And that seal is carried on their person at all times. It's the identifier. When Judah, of course, had that business with Tamar, he gave her as his identification his seal. And she could then produce it to say the child that she was carrying was his child. And he could not gainsay that fact. He could not deny it. So it's this desire to be as close as possible to him. The one who is always with him. The wonder is that even here below, Christ says to his church, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then she speaks of the power, the strength of love. Love is as strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. Love is powerful. It's interesting that the comparison, the first comparison used here is that love is as strong as death. There are other comparisons that might have been used, but the comparison that's used is that of death. The might, the strength of death, it's been said, part in jest, that there are two things in the world that are certain, death and taxes. You can cheat on your taxes, but you cannot cheat death. Death is mighty. Death is powerful. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Verse 2, all things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath is he who fears an oath. Why? Because, well, this is evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness it is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go 
to the dead is appointed unto all men, except the apostle wants to die, and after that, the judgment. And, of course, the exceptions, once again, is one of those cases where that old saying holds true. The exception proves the rule, the fact that two men... Enoch and Elijah did not die. They are great exceptions. But death comes to all and nobody. And so many people spend so much money trying to stave off death. And yet nobody has managed to escape. Nobody who has put all the effort into trying to avoid death. Death is strong. Death is mighty. Death takes even the greatest warrior Love is described here then as strong as death. And indeed love is stronger than death. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ, he who for love came down to earth to die for his people, has conquered death and conquered the grave. And secondly, we have this picture, it's a parallel here, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Now, First of all, of course, jealousy in modern English tends to be used in a a negative sense. But this is using jealousy in the same way as we find in Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, reading from verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What does that mean in that sense? Well, another passage that helps to illuminate it is... In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Is that jealousy? It's not a, a jealousy that is angry towards the wife. It's a jealousy rather that is guarding her, protecting her. It's the the husband who wants to protect his wife from anyone who might harm her. The man who is concerned that there are people out there who might want to harm his wife. There are men who are deceitful. There are men who wish to spoil her, to ruin her. It's a jealousy that is directed in love. And it's not something that hurts her, but rather it's a concern for her. And and she, of course, has her own jealousy towards him. Because she, again, wishes to have him and him alone. And this language is cruel as the grave. The word literally is sheol. It's very often translated as the grave, sometimes translated as hell. Again, it depends on the context, really. But sometimes it is pictured as a, a ravenous beast. So we have in Proverbs chapter 1, for example, the language of the, the bandits. Um, so Proverbs chapter 1 from verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lay in wait 
to shed blood that has lurked secretly for the innocent without cause and to swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. So it's this picture of the grave as a, a beast that eats people. The, uh, there's some echo of that in the word sarcophagus. A sarcophagus, uh, we think particularly in terms of Egyptian mummies come in sarcophaguses. Well, it comes from the Greek word meaning to eat flesh. And it's the idea that this coffin really eats the body that's put within. The grave is portrayed as being hungry, as devouring, as, in this sense, cruel. It has an appetite. And jealousy has an appetite to chew up and spit out all those who endanger, who threaten the partner. And it's flames. There is a flame. We think today we speak in modern English about a heart aflame with love. That love has is a fiery passion. It's flames are flames of fire. <coughs> a most vehement flame. And we have here this language of fire and water that neither fire that it's a fire that cannot be put out. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. Most fire can be put out by water, but not this. There is nothing that can quench this true love of God. The love that God has for his people, love that Christ has for his people, cannot be put out. And the love that his people have for him cannot be put out. I have loved you, he says, with an everlasting love. And because the, the love that Christ stirs up in his people's heart is his gift, is the work of the Holy Spirit, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And therefore it cannot be put out either. But there are ups and downs. Our love can be warmer or colder, but it never, never goes out. Another thing about love is that love cannot be bought. You can't buy love. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. Whatever, whatever he can give, it won't buy love. Now indeed, in the ancient world, money could buy a marriage. Still can today in the world, but it can't buy love. It can buy what appears to be a relationship, but it can't buy love itself. It can only bring the mercenary. The man who goes to the pure, upright woman and says to her, I will give you a fortune if you will love me. She laughs in his face. This is, that's not how love works. Love is rather something that God gives. And of course, on the other hand, it means that we cannot buy the love of God with our gifts. But so often human ideas of salvation are we can give. It's what the ancient world thought. All the pagans thought. We can give and the gods will love us because we give stuff to them. But God no more is no more attracted by the stuff that people give. than the love of a pure woman can be bought by the things that people give. Then we have the verses 8 through 10. 
And our version suggests that verses 8 and 9 are spoken by the Shulamites' brothers. And they're thinking of her then as their little sister. A little sister who is not yet grown up. She's not yet ready for love. And what do they do? What shall we do? What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? Well, they say, we will protect her. We will protect her purity. If she is a wall, we'll build upon her a battlement of silver. Of course, the battlement on a wall is for defence. Defence and beauty here. That her purity is a part of what makes her attractive. And if she is a door, we'll enclose her with boards of cedar. The idea being this protective gate that means, again, that people cannot just do as they please with her. That while she is a minor, and again, we think about the cultural setting here. In the ancient Near East, a woman would go from being a minor when she was a child, and then she would be under the protection of the men of her family. The extended family, so her brothers as well as her father and her grandfather, if he was still alive, would be around there somewhere. You think of the behaviour of Simeon and Levi when their sister Dinah was taken and defiled by Shechem. What did they do? Well, they went out and they committed genocide. They massacred every man in Shechem. They thought they deceived them into thinking that, oh, if, if we circumcise ourselves, we shall be able to basically take the, the, the wealth of Jacob and his family, and then Simeon and Levi went in and killed the men who were incapacitated. They were concerned for their sister's purity, their defence as to what they did when their father said, what do you think you're doing was, well, should, should he treat, should they treat our sister, though she were a common prostitute? And so here we have her brothers who, with their right concern, we will protect her while she is a child. But she then comes and says, I'm not a child anymore, I'm an adult. And therefore, therefore, she is able to make that choice for herself. That she, being having been kept pure, defended, now she goes from that state of being a child to that state of being an adult. When instead of being protected by her family, by her brothers particularly, she is to be protected by her husband. She is to be, I became in his eyes as one who found peace. And of course there is here in the Hebrew a pun, because the Hebrew word for peace is of course shalom, which is related to Solomon and Shulamit, her name. So one who found peace, she has peace in her name already, and now she has him and he is her peace. Christ is called in scripture our peace. The church has found peace in him. He is the one who brings that fullness, that wholeness. Again that word shalom is translated peace and rightly so. But it's peace not in the sense simply of a, an absence of conflict. It's peace in the sense of wholeness of all things as they ought to be. And I became in his eyes the one who himself is peace as one who found peace. The two become one because that's what happens in marriage. And then we have this picture of the vineyard. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal 
Haman. We are probably reminded immediately of Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal, at Baal, Hamon. And that vineyard, a picture here is a literal vineyard. And that literal vineyard, well of course he's the king. The king doesn't look after his own vineyard. He gets tenant farmers in for it. He leaves the vineyard to keepers. It's the same with the various estates that are owned by our king that he has tenants on the various farms at Sandringham. He has tenants on the Windsor estate and they do the farming. And they, of course, then pay rent to the crown. And if it was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins, which was, even then, a lot of money. But then she turns to Solomon and she says, My own vineyard. I am the vineyard. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand. And those who tend its fruit, two hundred. That she willingly, freely gives herself to him. There's no force, no pressure put upon her. He's not charging for her. He doesn't owe her in that sense, but she gives herself. And then he contemplates her, verse 13. You who dwell in the garden. And she is the one who dwells in the garden. She has pictured herself as a garden. And he says, the companions listened for your voice. Let me hear it. Let me hear your voice. It is a marvellous thing that the Lord speaks and says to his church, let me hear your voice. We marvel at our prayers. Our prayers are so often so disjointed. And yet he says, let me hear your voice. Let me hear you pray. And he will not despise the prayers of his people, but he says, let me hear. Let me hear. And he delights to hear the prayers of his people. There is here a great encouragement to pray here in this present age as we are here upon the earth. And then verse 14, the great conclusion of the matter She concludes it, very fittingly given the the way that the poem is put together, that it's very largely from her perspective, and so it must end with her words. And it ends with that great longing, that hope for that consummation, that day that, that is coming when the cry will go up, the bridegroom has come. Make haste, my beloved, Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Both of these are known for their speed. Have you ever seen a a young stag running? Or maybe seen one of these wildlife programs, a gazelle sprinting. They are fast and they are sure-footed. They don't fall over. She's looking for him to come quickly. Come quickly, she cries. Come quickly and be with me forever. Because it's to come quickly, not simply on a a flying visit, but to come quickly in that, that great coming of the bridegroom. And we do not know when the bridegroom is coming, but the church in her best days cries out, 
Even so, come quickly, Lord, come quickly from above. So we have the, the Bible itself ends with Revelation 22, verse 20. He says, he answers her, her, her cry when she says, even so, come quickly. He answers and says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen, even so, come Lord Jesus. I am coming quickly. Now we do not know the time of his coming. Many have made utter fools of themselves speculating about it. These days there's always people who some great event happens in the world and they think, is this a sign of his coming? He knows his day. And the call on his church is to be watching and waiting. To be as those virgins in the parable. The five who were wise, who had oil in their lamps. Now the oil is very often used as a picture of the Holy Spirit. Those who genuinely were prepared. Rather than those who knew he was coming, but made no real preparation. Who did not believe on him, who did not put their trust in him. But who trusted that they would have some opportunity in the future. And then the voice comes at midnight and there's no, no one there to sell the oil to them. Behold, he comes. And no man knows the day or the hour. But he is coming. And his church longs for his coming. It's not wrong for the church to long for him to come very soon. We do not know. We cannot tell when he shall come. It's not wrong to desire him to come in our lifetime. But at the same time, we know it's in his time. It's in his hour. He says, I am coming quickly. But he gets to define what quickly means. It has indeed been the best part of 2,000 years since the book of Revelation was written. And how many countless multitudes have come to Christ in those days. How many have been added to the church. But even so come quickly we cry. Even so make up the number of your elect. And bring to an end the times of suffering. And even so make haste my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. We look for his coming. And here now we enjoy that intimacy with him. By his Holy Spirit. And we pray again. Even so come Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat>